0: Amen. If you have your Bible, please turn with me to Romans chapter 10. We're going to keep going through Romans 10. We're at verse 9 today. Romans 10, 9 through 11. If you don't have a Bible, then please get one of the Bibles on the end of the pew. In that Bible, it should be on page 946. You're welcome to keep that Bible for yourself if you don't have one. Here's what it says Romans 10, verses 9 through 11. This passage and and studying this passage this week just reminded me of uh, one of the old Indiana Jones movies from the 80s that I saw when I was a kid. I bet a lot of you have probably seen this one too, but there's a point where Indiana Jones is running through this Arab city and having to fight off attackers all over the place and getting through the streets and, and the crowds. And then there comes a certain point where he runs into a crowd and the crowd just kind of parts And as the crowd parts, this man appears dressed in all black with this massive sword. And he starts swinging that sword around like a samurai warrior. And you get the feeling like this is going to be the fight of Indiana Jones' life. But instead, he just pulls out a revolver and shoots the guy. And that's the end of it. It seemed like this impossibly difficult task, but then all of a sudden, it's something very, very simple. And as we are in the scriptures, there is so much depth in the scriptures that occasionally you could be deceived into thinking that the Christian life and the Christian faith is some kind of an impossible task to grasp. But then we come to a a passage like this and it becomes really plain that no, this is pretty simple. It's pretty straightforward. There's so much depth in the Bible it can seem daunting, but there's also such simplicity. The, the way that Augustine put it, he said that the Bible is deep enough for an elephant to swim in and yet shallow enough for a child not to drown. It's a good opportunity as we're in these verses to remember and to know and to cling to the fact that, that Jesus said that we must come to him with this simple childlike faith. And when Jesus says that we need to come to him as a child, he's not saying that we need to pretend that we can't understand anything. He's not saying that you only apply your brain power to your math class and you don't apply your brain power to your Bible. He's not saying anything like that. What he is saying, though, is that at the heart of it, every single one of us must come to Jesus with a simple faith. As a child... Coming to the Father, trusting in Him. The way that Jesus put it in John 3 when he was talking to Nicodemus, who was a religious leader who knew all kinds of complex things, he said, You must be born again. I don't know if you've ever thought about what that means. Maybe you have in various ways, but one of the things that that means is that you need to give up on coming to God as an impressive grown up and you need to realize that the beginning point of your relationship with God must be that he makes you a baby he makes you a baby in the faith and that he will take care of you as you come to Jesus the way that Jesus put it in Matthew eighteen three, he said truly I say to you unless you are converted and become like children you shall not enter the kingdom of heaven Hmm. As we come to this passage in Romans 10, what came right before it was a very brief explanation of the difference between the law and the gospel. The law says, here's what you must do. Here is how you must serve God. And here is how you ought to serve your neighbor. You ought to love God and love your neighbor. You ought to follow all of the Ten Commandments. And yet, if we were to take the law of God... Even though it's so good. But if we were to take the law of God as our way to come to God, we'd be doomed. Instead, what God has done is he's come to us. That's what he just got done explaining. That when we come to God, it's, it's not as though our task is, is to do some incredible feat to, to go up to heaven and get Jesus and bring him down or to go into the abyss and, and bring him up from the dead. No, God has already done all the stuff for us. He brings it near. That's the gospel. Is Yes, there's all of these things that are expected of you and, and that are the standard for God's judgment if you're outside of Christ. But God has provided the way to eternal life free of charge. So what he's just got done explaining is the law says, do this and bring it to God. But the gospel says, God has done this and brought it to you. And right when he finished up that difference between the law and the gospel and explaining that, he says in verse 8, it's the word that is near you in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. He's saying God has done the work and he's brought it right down here to you. In this simple message that a child can understand and grasp and believe and be saved, he's brought it right down to your mouth and your heart. And he asks you to take hold of it with your mouth and your heart. And that's where he goes to today. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart, and you see that heart again, one believes and is justified. With the mouth, one confesses and is saved. So what we're going to look at today is we're going to look at the role of the mouth, we're going to look at the role of the heart, and we're going to look at what it means to be saved. The mouth and the heart and what it means to be saved. You may notice in in verse 9, he goes from mouth to heart, and then in verse 10, he goes from heart to mouth. And so what we're going to do is we're going to take the mouth first, and then we're going to go to the heart, and then we're going to talk about what it means to be saved. And maybe if you follow along in the outline on the back of the bulletin, maybe that would make it simpler, because we're trying to be simple, because this is a childlike faith that we need. But first of all, let's think about the confessing mouth of a saved person, a confessing mouth of a saved person now usually when we use the word confess what we're talking about is admitting that you have done something wrong and that is one form of confession that's a very important form of confession that the bible talks about but what it's talking about here is is what would come out of your mouth in terms of of professing you might normally say the word profess that Jesus is Lord of being willing to say Here is what I believe, making a profession of faith. That's more what it's talking about in this passage when it uses that word confessing, if you confess with your mouth. But why does it say that? This is a strange thing sometimes because the Bible has been so clear, and even the book of Romans has been so clear, that it's by faith alone that we're saved. It's not by any works. And you could say, well, making a profession of faith and saying these words that is a work, and in a way, well, yes, it is. But why does he say this? Why does he say if you confess with your mouth? Why does he say with the mouth one confesses and is saved? Well, it's because there is a deep, intimate connection between the heart and the mouth. And that connection is all over the Bible. One of the plainest ways that Jesus puts it in Matthew twelve thirty four is, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Did you know that there's there's not any words that come out of your mouth without going through your heart first? Even if they're lies, you had to process it somewhere inside before it came out of your mouth. And so Jesus is pointing out there is this intimate, deep connection between what comes out of your mouth and what's in your heart. And we kind of know this. That there's, there's a lot of evidence about somebody's heart and what flows out of their mouth. Well, that's what's going on here. If, if you have faith in Jesus in your heart, it's going to flow out of your mouth. That's the connection that's being made here. It, it's the, that there is, needs to be this central content to what it is that we believe that's also going to be the central content to what it is that we confess or profess about our faith. And he makes it clear here what that is, because he says, if you confess with your mouth that what? That Jesus is Lord. And believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. Which doesn't mean keep it private that God raised him from the dead. Right? It's not saying keep that in your heart and then only say out loud that Jesus is Lord. No, this is, it's putting all this together. You believe that Jesus is Lord in your heart. You believe that God raised him from the dead. And and you're going to be willing to say, yes, I believe this. He is my Lord. God raised him from the dead. And those who believe are going to be willing to say that. So so the central content of what you need to believe is also the central content of what you need to be willing to say that you believe, which is the work of, and the person of Jesus. The work and the person of Jesus. You need to believe and profess who Jesus is and what he's done. Now this comes down to kind of just the very basics of what we call the gospel, the good news. mentioned that a little bit already, but you need to know, I've told you this so many times, some of you could stand right up here and say it too, Four things that you need to remember about the gospel. You need to know these for yourself. You need to have these in your head so that you can tell others, which is God, man, Christ, and response. Right? God, man, Christ, response. We can put it very simply. God is holy. He's the holy creator and he's the holy judge of every person. Man is sinful that's a problem for us when we compare any human being other than jesus christ to any of the 10 commandments we're going to be found falling short disobedience against that holy god and that puts us in the status of deserving death and hell but god has given a solution which is christ so we have god man christ christ is the savior Christ is the Savior because of who he is, that he is God the Son, perfectly man and perfectly God in one person, and not just because of who he is, but also because of what he has done, which is to come in the flesh, to live perfectly for us, to die on the cross for our sins, to rise from the dead on the third day, and he's ascended into heaven and he's coming again. And what's the response? You have God, man, Christ, response. Well, the response is faith, right? And so that's really what we're talking about today. But that faith has to be primarily in the person and the work of Christ. And I want you to see this in these verses where it says, first of all, in verse 9, if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord. That's saying you would have faith in and be willing to profess with your mouth, who Jesus is, the person of Christ, and then after that, you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. That's getting at the work of Christ, that Jesus died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, as is put in 1 Corinthians 15, 3, and 4. I want us to to pause just for a second on this phrase, Jesus is Lord. Because this is this is kind of the the very first creed of the early church, if you might want to put it that way. If you want to say thinking categories of of you know creeds and confessions and statements of faith and uh, all, all of these kinds of things, well, th- this is this is the most basic one that there was. The most basic one that it started out with is is these words: Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, what does that mean? Well, first of all, we're talking about Jesus. We're talking about the actual historical figure who was, was born of the Virgin Mary, who grew up in, in Nazareth, who, uh, who was trained by his father as, as a carpenter, who, who walked and, and was seen and taught and did miracles fed the 5,000, all the stuff that he did. He, he taught publicly. He did his miracles publicly. He was crucified publicly. He rose from the dead publicly with more than 500 eyewitnesses. And he ascended into heaven. We're talking about the actual Jesus. But saying of that man, Jesus, Jesus is Lord. You see, there's, there's a difference between Believing in Jesus in terms of, well, I believe that Jesus existed. And believing in Jesus in terms of, I put my trust in Jesus as Lord. When the Bible talks about believing in Jesus, it's not saying believe that he exists as opposed to not existing. It's kind of obvious that he exists as opposed to not existing. Although you find weird internet conspiracies about that. What we're talking about is putting your faith in him as Lord, right? I can say, I believe in Bob Sweeney. He's right there. I have confidence that he can lead the final hymn right after we get done. There's a big difference between that and saying Bob Sweeney is Lord, because he's not. And you can say all day, yeah, I believe in Jesus. I believe, that, I believe that Jesus lived and walked and taught and he was a great teacher and, and I believe he, he was crucified and all that stuff. Yeah, I believe that. There's a big difference between that and Jesus is my Lord. When you say that Jesus is Lord, one of the things that you're confessing is that Jesus is the master, the master of everything. That's what Lord means. When you talk about Lord, you're talking about a master, and we're saying, I am willing to be in submission as his servant, as his slave, because he is master. He's master of everything, but you need to know especially that he's master of you. To say Jesus is Lord from the heart, part of what's built into that is the concept that we call repentance. You, you can't come to Jesus and say, I want to come and receive the forgiveness of sins that Jesus purchased on the cross so that I can then go and live however I feel like in my flesh and have a get-out-of-hell-free card. That, that's just so foreign to the Bible. There's no such thing as coming to Jesus as Savior without coming to him as Lord also. Saying Jesus is Lord, when we know that from the heart, part of what that's going to do is that's going to break you over your sin. To know I have deeply offended my master. But it's also going to drive us to say, I want to be in obedient submission to him. What I'm not saying is that you're saved by obeying him as Lord. You are not saved by works. But what what you're going to do from the heart when you come to actual saving faith in Jesus is you're going to recognize this really matters. Jesus is Lord over me personally. I can no longer be my own Lord and I can no longer have the opinions of man be my Lord and I can no longer have any other religious system be my Lord and everything else that has ever competed to be my master has to be set aside because Jesus is Lord. Part of what this also shows us is that when we say Jesus is Lord, built into that term, as it's used here in the New Testament, as it's used here in the book of Romans, as it's used especially here in Romans 10, we're going to see this really, really clearly through some of the Old Testament quotations that are going to come in when we get to next week's sermon. When we're talking about Jesus being Lord, This is not just a confession that he's in charge. This is a confession that he is God. We're talking about Lord in terms of Jesus standing up and saying before Abraham was, I am. The great capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D that you see in most of your English translations of the Old Testament. Yahweh, the great I am. When it's translated in the New Testament in Greek, it uses this term that we call Lord. And so when we come to Jesus and we're willing to confess Jesus is Lord, that's very simple, but there's a lot built into it there of saying, he's my master and he is my God. He is eternal God from before the foundation of the world. He is the second person of the Trinity, God the Son, and he is my Lord and my God. Another thing that we're confessing and believing as we come to Him is that God raised Him from the dead. That's the work of Jesus. I'll just read you. I, I quoted this already, but I'm going to read it. First Corinthians fifteen three and four. I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried, and that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. So there's a recognition here. Here's who Jesus is. Here's what Jesus has done. But when we're saved, when God has done this mighty work of saving us, we believe in our hearts and we confess with our mouths, and it's very simple. Jesus is Lord. God raised him from the dead. He's my Lord. He died for my sins. He rose to give me life. I love him. I embrace him. One of the things that is, is just a question that comes up when you read these verses, where this confessing with the mouth is tied so closely to being saved from sins, if with the, with the mouth one confesses and is saved... Why does it say that? Well, it's saying that because it's a natural thing that flows out of actually believing, is that you're going to want to confess it. But what about a faith that won't profess Christ? And I put faith in quotation marks there. What about a faith that won't profess Christ? Well, the answer is that's not faith. You can say up and down to yourself, Yes, I'm good with God. I pray all the time, but I'm going to keep it private. If I, if I start letting people know about what I believe about Jesus, then, then they're going to think that I'm one of those crazy evangelicals that I hear about on the news. And I don't want to be lumped in with those people. Here's what Jesus says about that in Matthew 10, 32 and 33. So everyone who acknowledges me before men... I also will acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I also will deny before my Father who is in heaven. Jesus is saying pretty plainly, one of the essential marks of what it looks like to be a person who's going to heaven is that you are excited to publicly profess that Jesus is your Lord. It's not going to remain a private faith. What about Peter, though? Remember what Peter did right before Jesus was crucified? He was asked three different times, aren't you one of Jesus' followers? And three different times he said, absolutely not, don't know him, don't have anything to do with him. He denied Jesus three times. I have good news for you guys. If you have ever been ashamed of Jesus, even though that is very serious sin, That is not the unforgivable sin. What did Peter do? He repented. He heard heard that rooster crow as Jesus said that he would, and he ran off and he wept and he repented. He confessed. I mean, how else how else would the authors of the New Testament know to write this down? Except that he confessed the sin and said, I am so sorry, I denied my Savior. But God restored him. God forgave him. By the Holy Spirit, he was built up into boldness, to where he never walked back into denying Christ. He stood boldly for Christ in the face of being thrown into prison. He stood boldly for Christ in the face of being beaten, in the face of being hated, all the way, as as tradition of the early church tells us, all the way to the point of being crucified upside down because he would not deny Christ again. So if you have ever been in a position where you were ashamed of Jesus, repent of that. But listen, that's not the unforgivable sin. But at the same time, take this seriously. It is with the mouth that one confesses and is saved. He ties confession so closely to salvation because it is just normal if you trust in Jesus you're not going to keep it private. You're going to be willing to say, Jesus is my Lord. Jesus is Lord. God raised him from the dead. It's a close connection. There's a a little bit of an obscure question, but what about believers who physically can't profess their faith in Christ? Let's say that somebody is on their deathbed, not able to speak any longer, and they come to believe in Christ at that point but they can't say anything about it well this passage is not saying that you're saved by your confession it's saying that this confession is a natural thing that flows out of it and and you might also think of it kind of in the same terms as baptism there's a lot of passages in the new testament that really closely tie together salvation and faith with baptism because baptism is presented to us in the scriptures as kind of the first formal outward act of obedience to Christ as a disciple and being joined to his church. And yet, at the same time, you've got the thief on the cross right next to Jesus who spent his whole life in sin and and was being executed up there for the actual crimes that he actually committed and he came to faith in Jesus while he was on the cross. And what did Jesus say? Did Jesus say, somebody better come splash some water on this guy or he can't go to heaven? No, he looked at him and said, today you will be with me in paradise. Now, I want to make that connection back here with confession from the mouth. It is possible that someone on their deathbed can come to faith in Christ never be able to physically tell anyone that they've come to faith in Christ, and we'll still see them in heaven because God saves by his grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, and not by the work of our own mouths. And yet, if they were able to move their mouths, they would be praising Jesus as Lord. They would be praising Jesus as Lord. What I don't want you to take from that, I don't want you to take, okay, well, I don't believe in Jesus right now, Or, you know, I believe in the way that I know that I need him, but I'm not ready to turn my life over to him. And I'll wait. Don't take that from there. Don't think to yourself, well, if somebody on their deathbed can come to faith and spend an eternity in heaven after a life of sin, then that's what I'll do. Do you know what you're saying if you think that to yourself? And I won't just say, not even just if you think that you're going to wait until your deathbed, if you think you're going to wait until this afternoon, You don't know if you have this afternoon. And do you know what you're saying when you say, I will wait until later to turn my heart over to Jesus in faith? What you're saying is, I recognize that I am a wretched sinner who deserves hell for my sin, but I hate Jesus so much that I would just rather not come to him. That's what you're saying. Repent. Repent of that. Understand what that is Turn away from that, turn to Jesus, come to him. Today is the day of salvation, it says in 1 Corinthians. Today, not sometime later when I figure it out better. Today is the day. Turn your heart over to faith in Jesus and believe. There is a hard question too though, what about unbelievers who profess faith in Christ? What about those who don't believe in their heart and yet it still comes out of their mouth that Jesus is Lord. The Bible talks about this being a reality. Back in Isaiah 29:13, it says, "Because this people draw near to me with their mouth and honor me with their lips while their hearts are far from me." Or in Jeremiah 12:2, He's talking to God, and he says, "You are near in their mouth and far from their heart." You know what that is? That, that's called a hypocrite. That's, that's what a, a hypocrite is, somebody who what is coming out of their mouth does not match what's in their heart, doesn't match what it is that they actually believe. When we say hypocrite, a lot of times what people mean by that is people who will say one thing and do another thing, and that's, I guess, one kind of hypocrisy. But Jesus dealt with a lot of hypocrites who never did something other than what they said, at least not on the outside. And yet he could see their hearts. He could see their hearts. And he knew that they were what he called whitewashed tombs. That even though in the, the estimation of every human being around, they could look at that person and say, that person says all the right things and that person does all the right things. God could look in their heart and know that their words and their heart didn't match. That what they believed in their heart was so different from what was coming out of their mouth. He even said this not just to the Pharisees, but even of many people who would profess that Jesus is Lord. He says in Matthew twenty-two 7, seven twenty-two, on that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. I never knew you. There's a verse in Nahum that we read in Sunday school this morning. Thanks for a great Sunday school lesson, Will. Appreciate it. Nahum 1.7 says, He knows those who take refuge in him. Jesus says, I'm, I'm going to say to them, I never knew you. Well, you know what? They, they weren't taking refuge in him. They were taking refuge in the fact that they prophesied in his name. They were taking refuge in the fact that they called him Lord, Lord. They were taking refuge in the fact that they cast out demons in his name and did many mighty works in his name. You know what they were taking refuge in? They were taking refuge in themselves. They were taking refuge in the fact that they were able to arrange their lives in such a way that they could appear to be followers of Jesus. They were not taking refuge in Jesus He didn't know them. You need to know that it is possible to profess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, but not have that coming from your heart. You need to go to Jesus from the heart first. Don't start by trying to look like a Christian. You need to start by coming to Jesus and handing your heart to him and believing in him and letting him transform you from the inside out. A hypocrite says, I'll get the outside together, and maybe my heart will follow. But a believer in Jesus says, I am coming with everything messed up, and handing it to God, and trusting in Jesus alone, and I'm going to see what he'll do with me. That's what it looks like to come to him, believe in him, and be saved. So with that in mind, let's think about that believing heart of a saved person. Of course, that's something that we haven't been able to really discuss, the confessing mouth, without saying a lot about the heart, but let's think about that in particular. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. So you have to believe in your heart, and it says in verse 10, with the heart one believes and is justified. It's a matter of the heart, It's a matter of the heart, and by saying it's a matter of the heart, I I don't mean that in, in the way that you sometimes hear that, where people will say, don't judge me. It's a matter of the heart. I know my heart is awesome. No, when we say it's a matter of the heart, it means we need to come and hand our hearts over to God. We need to put our hearts in the hands of Jesus. It has to start from the heart. There's a lot of people who can say and do all the right things. They can fool strangers. They can fool pastors, they can maybe even fool their own families, they can get their words and their actions so orderly that they might even fool themselves, but it says in First Samuel sixteen seven, the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. The heart is the location of saving faith. John Calvin, when he's talking about this, points out that it doesn't say the brain. It says the heart. It's that concept of the head and the heart. Now, there's nothing that's going to get to your heart without going through your brain first. It's got to go through your head before it can come into your heart, but it's also possible for something to stop at the head and never make it to the heart. And it's possible even for something to be processed very, very deeply in the head without ever making it to the heart. There are people who have lived in this world and convinced themselves that they were followers of Jesus because they could use their minds to make all kinds of intellectual arguments about why other people ought to believe in Jesus. And maybe other people even did because of what they said, and yet it never went from their head to their own heart. You need to not just know that Jesus is Lord and that God raised him from the dead. You need to not even just affirm and be able to argue for the fact that Jesus is Lord and God raised him from the dead. You need to have it in your heart You need to personally believe and trust in Jesus as Lord and Savior. It has to go from the head. It has to go to the heart. It's not just knowing. It's not just agreeing. It's personal trust. It's being known by Jesus. It is being loved by Jesus as we turn to him in faith and in love. That faith, it has Jesus. It has Christ as its object. We're not talking about being saved by just some sort of a faith, just some kind of a trust in something. Not even just a trust that God will get you through your life. It's a trust in the person of Jesus. It's a personal trust in Christ as the object of our faith. When it says that Jesus is Lord, that God raised him from the dead, it's showing that. The way that our, our statement of faith here at this church, the 1853 version of the New Hampshire Confession puts it, says that faith, here's what it is, faith is heartily receiving the Lord Jesus Christ as our prophet, priest, and king, and relying on him alone as the only and all-sufficient Savior. I think that's a pretty good summary of it. Has to be in the heart, has to be in Christ, and that faith is the only instrument of our Justification. I said earlier, we're going to keep this simple. That didn't sound simple, did it? But it is. Faith in Christ is the only instrument of our justification. Let me explain two words there. One is justification. Justification is when God forgives our sins and counts us in his sight as righteous. Not because of us, not because of anything we have done, but because Jesus is righteous. And because his goodness, his character, his works, his righteousness is put in our column, in God's account, when we put our faith in Jesus. Our sin is wiped away. Jesus' righteousness is brought to us. We're clothed in Christ. Justification has as its only instrument faith. What do I mean by instrument? Instrument. I mean the thing that God uses to bring it to us. The thing that God uses to bring it to us. Don't get confused and think that your faith is what saves you. Jesus is what saves you. But he does it through the instrument of your faith, which he himself is the one who can give. Think think of it like this. If, If you go to the mechanic... The mechanic's going to fix your car, but he's going to use a tool to do it. When the mechanic picks up a wrench and fixes your car, it's not the wrench that's fixing your car, it's the mechanic that's doing it, but he's doing it through the tool, through the instrument of the wrench. Or when a composer sits down at a piano to write a beautiful song, it's not the piano that's writing the beautiful song. It's the composer doing it, but he's using the instrument of the piano to do it. Or even just think of receiving a gift. When somebody hands you a gift, you reach out and you take it in your hand. Your hand is not what did it, but the hand is the thing that you use to do it. It's it's the giver of the gift who gave the gift, but the hand receives it. Your faith is not what saves you, but it's the hand that we use to take and receive the free gift of justification, of forgiveness of sins, of eternal life, of salvation in Jesus. And it's faith alone. It's not anything that we could do. It's not anything that we could provide to God. It's simply by reaching out the hand of faith and taking Christ and all that he has given to us. This is the way that people have always been saved. Always. Back in Genesis fifteen six, it's how Abraham was saved. He believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. It, it, it says in Romans that those words that was counted to him were not written for Abraham's sake alone, but for ours also, that righteousness will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. It is by faith. It's by faith alone that we have our sins forgiven. That's a simple way to put it. we say faith is the only instrument of our justification, just here, here's what it is. The way you get saved is by believing in Jesus. It's so simple. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. It's the only path to salvation. It's not through faith in anyone else. It's not through faith in ourselves. It's not through becoming your best version of yourself or anything like that. The way that we get eternal life is by faith alone in Christ alone. I do want to emphasize in verse 11 it says this, for the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. What does that mean? It means everyone who believes in him. There have been times and places throughout church history when people thought to themselves, well I believe in Jesus but I don't know whether I'm among the elect." And so, therefore, I don't know if I have eternal life. That's a misunderstanding of the doctrine of election. And it's a misunderstanding of justification by faith. It's a misunderstanding of a lot of things. Yes, it said very, very clearly in Romans 9 that God is the one who's planned out from before the foundation of the world who it is that's going to be saved. But that's all to be taken care of in God. And he gives us very plainly what it is that we're to take care of, which is believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved. If you believe, that right there is the evidence that you are chosen of God, that he gave you the gift of faith, that he has given you the gift of salvation. It is for everyone who believes. It's not a matter of your background, it's not a matter of your sins. You may think to yourself, well, I'm not like these people who grew up in Christian homes. Well, maybe you're not. Maybe you grew up in a Christian home and you say to yourself, I'm not like these people who had radical conversions when they were coming out of all kinds of of terrible sins in their 30s and 40s or whatever it is. Well, maybe you're not like that. But it's for everyone who believes, no matter your background. It's for everyone who believes, no matter whether you say to yourself, well... I haven't done any of those great big things. Well, yes, you have. (laughs) Your your sin is condemning. Or maybe you say to yourself, well, I've done such big things. It can't just be so simple as to come and to believe in the Lord Jesus and be saved from my sin. Yes, it is. It's just that simple. Everyone who believes, whoever calls on the name of the Lord, everyone who believes in him, will not be put to shame. You know what? Maybe you even think to yourself, I don't know if I believe hard enough. There's there's this other guy in my church who I know he has faith because it's so strong, but I don't know if I just believe hard enough. I love what Robert Haldane said about that. He said, the least degree of faith embraces Christ and unites the soul to him. Faith does not save us by being strong or weak. It is Jesus Christ by whom we are saved. And not by our faith, which is only the instrument or hand by which we receive Him. You reach out and receive the gift of salvation in Jesus with a great big muscular hand, or you reach out and receive it with a tiny little child hand. It's not the strength of your faith, it is the gift given to you in Christ. Receive it. Believe. Be saved. The question. Finally, to think about it, as we get to the end of verse 11, is saved from what? Saved from what? We're we're using the word saved. Well, if you say saved, well, that implies that there's something that you're saved from. And what it says in verse 11 is, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. This, by the way, is a quote from Isaiah 28, verse 16. Whoever believes in him will not be in haste or disturbed or made to panic, or as it's translated here, be put to shame. Now, there's lots of people in the world who want God to save them from this or that, from financial hardship, from poor health, from hard circumstances of various kinds, and it's not as though God doesn't care about those things, but that's not what he says he's going to save us from, at least not in this life. In Jesus' own day, his own people, the Jewish people, they were looking for salvation from the Roman people. They were looking for salvation politically from political oppressors. But the angel of the Lord who came to Joseph and announced that Jesus was going to be born said to Joseph, he will save his people from their sins. He will save his people from their sins. That's primarily, that. that's what Jesus saves us from. Our own sins. And not just our own sins, but the consequences of those sins as it's put here in, in Romans 10, 11, to being put to shame. And that sounds kind of bad, but it's worse than that. Being put to shame is described in Matthew 3.7 as the wrath to come. Being put to shame is described in Malachi 3.2 as who can endure the day of his coming and who can stand when he appears, for he is like a refiner's fire and a fuller's soap. Or here's how it's put in 2 Thessalonians 1, seven: when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might when he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed because our testimony to you was believed. You need to be saved from your sins because sin brings eternal destruction, eternal punishment. But for us who believe, we have this assurance from 1 John two twenty eight: Little children, abide in him so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink back in his coming not shrink back in his coming. I want to put this very, very simply. I want to sum it up with a verse that's earlier in Romans. Romans 6.23, For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. I want to make this as plain as can possibly be, which is this, with the heart one believes and is justified. As Paul put it to the Philippian jailer when the jailer said, what must I do to be saved? Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. If that's you, don't put it off. Don't say, I'd rather remain in my sins and keep Jesus over there. Don't hate Jesus. Come to Jesus. Believe in him. Be saved. If you are a believer in Jesus, if you, you, you... ought to be rejoicing in all of this ought to be absolutely nothing new here if you come to church to hear new things go to some liberal church they've got a lot of new stuff to think up every week but i hope you'll be rejoicing in the gospel and i hope this might be ammunition in your evangelism gun as you go out to share the gospel to others let's pray Father, we thank you for what Christ has done for us. Lord, he is Lord, and he is the one who died for our sins, was buried, and rose from the dead. Lord, I pray that you would grant the gift of faith to any who are here who need to believe, whether it's children, adults, teenagers, anybody else. I pray that you would grant them to be converted and to come to you as little children with a simple childlike faith that would say that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God of God the Father. Lord, help us to walk in the assurance of faith as those who believe. Thank you for the free gift you've given us in Jesus, and it's in his name we pray. Amen.